Samson, Greg. Not Samson. Not what? Not Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of Outside Looking In, the podcast series wherein I talk to people around the league from other markets about the Raptors and about their respective teams so that, hey, you can kind of figure out what the consensus is on Toronto, what the world thinks of them, and then also you can learn about the league at large or based on what episodes you're choosing, a specific team. This episode, the Knicks, the legal uh, opponents of the Raptors, we have Ariel Pacheco here to talk about it. My favorite Knicks writer, my favorite Knicks talker. Ariel, how you doing, man? I'm doing good. Appreciate the kind words. It's ironic because you're my favorite Raptors writer. So this is this is like full circle right now. That's right, man. It's serendipitous. First thing, <laughs> let's get it out of the way. The legal battle. How much have you read? Have you kept up with it? Does it matter to you at all? It doesn't really matter to me. I know it matters to a lot of people. Um, I haven't dug too deep into it. Um, from what I gather, it's um, a Knicks employee who went on to work for the Raptors, um, took all of his synergy data. Um, there was also some like game plan stuff from like games against, I think, the Pacers and the Nuggets. Um, yeah. I don't know what to make of it. Um, I think it's interesting that it went to an actual like legal court and not like something that's being like arbitrated by the actual NBA. Um, I think we kind of have to wait and see where it goes because it's kind of like funky and weird, but um, it's just weird, man. I don't know what else to say about it. I'll, I'll give you my sniff test. So I think it went outside of the league because they obviously took it to the league first and the league was like, we we can't do anything with this really because people take the stuff a lot of the time. Now, yeah. you shouldn't be sharing I totally agree with people who say like, by the letter of the law, what this guy did, don't do that. It's punishable. Agreed. Now, the ethical stuff, I'm like, well, in the abstract, he used Synergy data, which is a third party. You know, you might even have Synergy. I might have Synergy, right? Like a lot of people have Synergy. I didn't think it was a big deal from that point of view. And I think they went outside of the NBA because it's probably easier to have, to win it outside of the NBA because you can just kind of go by sense. corporate law or corporate precedent. Now, do I think it'll have ramifications for Darko, the Raptors as an organization or anything like that? I don't think so. As far as the scout, um, he might it might end up damaging his career, unfortunately. That's that's the thing. It's always the lower level guys who get screwed when yeah. the, the big wigs play hardball. But okay. We'll leave that there. I just it's the Knicks Raptors one. We had, we had to, to we talk had to. about it. Yeah. yeah. And but I do enjoy like the I don't know, it was like three or four days of talking points about it. Everyone's like, oh my God, the Raptors just hired this new coach and he's gonna get fired. And it's like, wait, 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 wait. I don't think it gets what? I don't think it gets to that level either for what it's worth. I don't yeah. No. So we'll see. Um I'm excited to see what the outcome is in the the civil it's a civil trial, I think. So anyway, yeah, Ariel, we're gonna talk about the Knicks. You and I, before last season, I think we we expected them to be better than consensus. We were still holding on to, hey, don't don't drop the Julius Randle stock. This guy, he might have something. He's better than people think. Back to all NBA. There's still this weird thing where it's the Voldemort and Harry thing about the Knicks and the Raptors. Neither can live while the other survives. They're <laughs> toggling each other. Um, yeah. Just give me the, the breakdown on the Knicks uh, last season and heading into this season. How do you feel about them? 
Yeah, um, just a little quick aside. I make I made a joke about Julius Randle that like at the beginning of every season he kind of just like spins a wheel and decides what kind of seasons he's gonna have. Yeah. He's like a different player every year. Not even just in terms of like quality, but just like the way he plays. It's just a different version of him every year. So I'm hoping he he sticks to the All NBA level that that he kind of cycles in between seasons now. Um, but overall, just looking at the Knicks, um, I think it's I think a lot of people were not a lot of people, but there's a section of like Nick fans that are kind of frustrated with their off season and feeling like they didn't do enough that this was their time, you know, to make their leap the way their contracts are set up. This is kind of their time to, you know, go get a star. Um, there's not really much available, especially ones that make sense for the Knicks like Damian Lillard and Harden aren't really guys you want alongside Brunson, who's kind of, you know, the cornerstone of the franchise right now. But me personally, how I feel about it is I think the Knicks are in a great position. You know, they have a ton of young talent. None of their contracts are really, you know, debilitating. I think that they have a lot of flexibility, which I think in the NBA, especially now, being able to, you know, make moves, whether through trade or or free up cap space, whatever the case may be, being able to have that flexibility to make different moves is is very um, essential. And I think they have a lot of young talent that I that I'm I enjoy watching. I've watched most of their games, if not all their career games already. So I think it's it's a good place because I think they have a foundation of something that can be you know stable, which is not something you could have said for the Knicks for the past what, however many years. Um, so I think that's a good place to be. I think they have something that they can continue to build off of, and I'm kind of excited to just continue to watch these young guys kind of figure out and learn how to win and play off each other as they grow together. I think that's a that's a great point is that the Knicks for the first time in a very long time have a multivariate way to kind of achieve something in the future. They have um, a couple cornerstones who aren't necessarily young, but good players in their prime or a, a kind of approaching the end or the start, depending on how you view Randall and Brunson. They have the ability to add through the draft. They are the Knicks. So, of course, they can do something in free agency and they're doing a very good job developing their younger guys. That's a lot of, you know, positive momentum in a lot of different areas. So they can choose which way they want to pursue the star, it, whether it's through development, whether it's through, you know, trading draft picks, whether it's through free agency, they have a an opportunity to do something. Even when we look at like the Mellow Knicks, which were great teams, and I had fun watching them just from the outside, that that team had to add in one way and one way only. So I understand why they wouldn't be in a rush because they're in a pretty good spot. Now, I know the Knicks are kind of like a, they've been a punching bag for a long time, but they've they've built the organization into, you know, there's a lot of positive momentum. You said they're in a good spot. I'm kind of curious, the Raptors, how do you view their standing in the league right now, their version of momentum? It's tough to gauge exactly what it is they're trying to do. Um, from Especially from the outside looking in, I'm not, you know, in the, in the Raptors' weeds every day in and day out. Um, I'm, I'm a little confused with the moves that they seem to like, do one thing that indicates they're thinking this way and then their next move is like the complete opposite of the previous one. So I'm just like a little like, what are you guys trying to do? Just pick a pick a direction and then, you know, stick to it. Um, I do think that they have a lot of intriguing talent. It's just that the talent that they have doesn't really mesh well together, I think, in my opinion. And I don't think they've found the correct kind of supporting cast to kind of amplify those skills that their main guys have right now, especially on this current roster. Um, I think losing Fred is a big hit, obviously. Fred is a very good player, has been throughout Toronto, his time in Toronto. And, um, yeah, just like signing Jakob, re-signing Jakob, which I also think is a very solid player, um, good starting caliber center. But then 
letting Fred go, who I thought they kind of got fertile to amplify his game and his pull-up ability, having a real big who can screen for him. So it's just that kind of like jumbledness of like decisions. It's just kind of confusing. So, so I'd love to hear where you stand on this. <laughs> so I'm of the mind that losing Fred makes them a worse team. Some people, you know, there's there's definitely um, a collection of people who think that losing Fred is addition by subtraction. He was quite quite maligned by the end of his time in Toronto, even so that in his goodbye message, he commented on it, saying he was the most hated. Interesting, interesting development for a guy who got finals MVP vote. But regardless, there's some people who think it's addition by subtraction because he was not that efficient. I don't think it'll be addition by subtraction. I think that they did pretty well to sign Schroeder, but I, and despite Schroeder winning, you know, World Cup MVP, which is cool and good, I don't think he's going to radically change the Raptors' offense or defense. And on the whole, do I think Schroeder's going to have a better season than Fred or that he's a better player than Fred? I don't think so. If, if people do believe that, God bless. We all look at the game differently. Mm-hmm. Now, um, re-signing Pirtle, you don't want to lose a guy that you just traded, you know, a first round pick for you. There's like the sunk cost fallacy, et cetera. You want to retain good players. You just lost Fred for nothing. You've lost a bunch of guys for nothing in the wake of the championship. So I understand why they kept Pirtle. And Pirtle is just a good center to have. Like having guys develop with a good backstop defensively and a guy who sets screens, passes well, uses his interior spacing to his advantage and can finish plays that you make for him. It's that's a great developmental thing to have for your younger guys, Scotty especially. The tough part is that the team doesn't shoot well at all. Now in some of those transitional lineups, they're going to be able to shoot of course, um with guys like Grady Dick, hopefully Otto Porter Jr is healthy. Um they're going to have guys coming off the bench and shooting, but it's going to be interesting whether shooter starts or whether he doesn't that starting lineup just won't shoot the ball well at all unless massive steps are made by both Scotty and Pascal, which it's hard to expect from either at this point. Basically, it's all confusing. I have no idea what this is going to look like. The My tagline so far has been that if they do succeed, I'm very excited for what it looks like because they're going to be achieving it probably through near league best defense, I assume, and a bunch of transition buckets and Darko will have schemed up some kind of craziness in the half court to get them into a decent spot. But overall, I'm also very confused. I, I want to appeal to you know what you're thinking. When Raptors fans, when Raptors analysts observe the league, you notice what happens with DeJounte, for example. You notice what happens with Russ back when he was with the Thunder. You notice what happens with uh, all these players who they're in trade rumors. Dame, for example to leave the team they've been with for a long time and they're about to go somewhere else. Does the Pascal do the Pascal rumors seem more or less the same for him as they have for other stars who have been traded in the past? I'd say so. Um, maybe not as loud, but I do think that there, there are some, there are some rumblings. Atlanta has been a name that I've seen come up. I think Indiana showed some interest, but maybe that's different now after they they picked up some forwards, but I definitely think, I think the question with Siakam getting traded comes from if they aren't going to trade him, why hasn't he kind of been resigned yet? Why hasn't he been extended? Um, so that's kind of where it comes from, from my end. And then I also just, me not being in the weeds every day of the, of the Raptors, I just don't, 
I don't know if they're ready to completely build around Scotty yet. And I don't know if they know that they are either. And that's where it comes from, from my point of view. And you can shine some light on that and tell me how wrong I am. <laughs> what that no, that's that's the point. That's a perfect takeaway, I think, is that some people believe Scotty is the out and out massive star of the future who you build around. But I don't think like Scotty has shown that he's a cornerstone, of course, but not every cornerstone is one that you fit the whole idea of the team around. Because then, for example, people had problems building around Pascal Siakam, an all NBA player twice now, right? Pascal is one of the 20 best players in the NBA. Some people would maybe argue you into the 25 or 30. That's fine. But people didn't want to build around him because they don't see the, the you know, championship potential in it. Yeah. And you could not convince me that Scotty is going to be the best player on the championship team. Not like that. Would, that's pretty tough. And you'd have a tough time convincing most people around the league and people in the Raptors organization. Probably you give them the truth serum, right? And say it's off the record, they're going to tell you, well, it's tough to imagine Scotty being the best player on championship team because that's an MVP usually or an MVP level player. They aren't ready in some respects to just build around Scotty. They need other talent in there to make it more tenable. They need to have a couple more shots at that MVP or lesser, an all NBA level player to pair with Scotty to make it like, okay, this is what we're building around, especially since they don't have their first round pick this year, you know, they, they don't have all their picks. It makes it a complicated situation because Pascal wants to be in Toronto, wants to sign there, wants a chance at the Supermax, all this kind of stuff. Yes. But also when you have Jakob and Scotty also in the front court, the spacing is crazy. And, you know, Pascal, if he doesn't resign or sign an extension, he's expiring. OG Ananobi if he doesn't sign the extension, expiring. Like, that's pretty gnarly. And then Gary Trent Jr. also, if he doesn't sign the extension, expiring. All these guys expiring, a couple of them clearly wanting more on their plate. Pascal embroiled in, con not controversy, but in trade rumors and validated by both the organization and teams around the league as far as the interest in it. It's just like, who knows how this turns out? But on its face, pretty confusing. Their path is not completely set. And I don't know what they could have done in the past to make it simpler going forward. And I don't know what they're going to do to choose a path in, in the future. But as currently constructed, it's a dysfunctional roster that's been built. If that, I hope that illuminates things. It does. Do you, do you think that they're trying to thread the needle between kind of bringing in young talent. I know they just drafted Grady Dick and then, you know, they have Scotty Barnes and then also like, you know, like the win now versus the like one later kind of thing. Are they trying to thread all that thread that needle and it's just, it hasn't kind of worked out yet. Or wh what do you think they're exactly trying to do there? I think last season was a, a thread the needle attempt for sure. Because if Scotty, and I think I liked Scotty's season last, I know the NBA at large thinks he took like a big step back or stagnated. I think that he had a lot of progress, like progress made. He won a lot more minutes. The playmaking was pretty great. The scoring, he has to develop some of his on ball skills quite a bit to become the next level of score. But I liked his season. Um, the team was waiting for like a Scotty big jump 
precious to maintain what he was doing at the end of 2021-22 and jump. They wanted maybe OG to bring some on-ball reps. They weren't expecting Fred to have his worst, you know, pull-up shoot or worst jump shooting season because his spacing was so, you know, paramount to their success to kind of work off of their initiation wings. And none of that worked out. And their defense fell apart too before trading for Pirtle. And then trading for Pirtle made the offensive environment more difficult for Pascal and Scotty because of the spacing. So nothing really clicked. Everything that they needed to go right either stagnated or took a step back. And that made everything untenable, in my opinion. And then so this season, it seems like once again, they're like, okay, if Scotty takes that big step, we'll have a really good defense. He'll make the offense more tenable. It, like it'll be a, a better environment for everybody and they're not in the luxury tax so they can have a chance at it and they don't have their first round pick so might as well go for it i think that's the thinking but the danger in that is the aforementioned expiring players i get what they're doing by saying like we have a young player who we think could be a star let's give them a shot let's have good players around them and let's see if we can make a run at it with a good defense a bunch of transition offense that's clearly the formula they're going for and they've succeeded at that before but if it doesn't work out then once again you're looking at three expiring contracts and of an all nba player one of the best 3 and d players in the league and a guy who while isn't he won't be changing the landscape of teams he signs on or plays against Gary Trent Jr. is a positive player and a positive asset for the team. So having all of that there, it's it's a momentous season, depending on like how it goes. So I think yeah. I think there's an interesting conversation kind of if we relate and, and I'm not comparing them as players like one to one. I just mean their situations and kind of like Scotty and RJ Barrett, just in terms of young players who like have like clear flaws and not I'm not like criticizing them but they have very clear flaws as players and their team context doesn't exactly lend themselves to kind of easing those flaws or, or easing mm-hmm. those concerns so the way I think about it is like RJ's best skill is getting to the basket driving to the rim so in theory if you're building this team around RJ you want the center that can space the floor you want you want you just want spacing you want to give them as much room to open up the driving lanes, make easy pickouts to shooters and, you know, pull the, pull the opposing bigs out of the rim. And sort of similar to Scotty in terms of that, like he operates within the three-point line, within the arc. And he's kind of cluttered by, you know, the addition of Pergo. Siakam likes to operate in kind of that same area. Um, even though he can space out, that's not, he's not really like an above the break kind of guy. And I think it's an interesting thing where like, and I, I'm curious to hear your thoughts on like development of these young guys when, they're being put in team context situations where it's not ideal. Does it, how do you feel about that in terms of like forcing them to develop aspects of their games that maybe they wouldn't have had to if their team context was more beneficial to them? Do you so, get, do you get what I'm trying to ask? Oh yeah, definitely. Yeah. Really great question. The thing that people outside of New York and some people in, like a lot of people outside of New York and some people inside of New York will say is that RJ isn't good enough to prioritize context around. You know what I mean? And I know people in Toronto really love Scotty Barnes, but when you stagnate in some of your on-ball creation and Scotty's initiation hasn't been bursting at the seams and he hasn't been completely dominating in the 
traditional types of initiation, like above the break, isolation, handoffs, pick and roll possessions. He's mostly operating in the in-between and doing a great job. I, I, Scotty's game, I think, is really brilliant, but it's not traditional. And so building a, an offense around him with spacing, it seems like right now you'd be leaning into the same incorrect solution that people thought about Ben Simmons. It's like, oh, just surround Ben Simmons with shooters. It's like, why? I get that that's good for Ben Simmons' game, but you're not actually going to have a, you know, a good offense based on that, you know, that tenet. And I just, I just don't think that that's the correct way to build around Scotty. I think Scotty is going to be an all-star. I think he's going to be positive on both sides of the floor. I think he's going to be one of the best playmakers in the NBA. But I also think he needs somebody else to initiate offense and to play off of and all that kind of stuff. And the Raptors don't currently have that guy. It's like it's Pascal and Pascal's great at it, but Pascal doesn't do it with the pull up from three, which helps space out. Mm -hmm. And Pascal isn't a guard to play with Scotty. And so it's, it's a little bit more difficult to envision it. And so the answer for Scotty, while I think Scotty is a a much better prospect than RJ and I don't know if you, yeah, sure. And then you agree with that. And, you know, people watched team Canada and had, he was he RJ was a frustrating watch for a lot of Canadians, I think, despite RJ, I think, trying to elevate himself in a role that was a difficult ask of him. Um, I'm ranting at this point, but basically um, you have to question like, hey, is it worth changing the context completely for a player who couldn't dominate in this other context or couldn't take possessions away from other guys? And so, you know, Scotty had opportunities last season to dominate games where like either Pascal or Fred is gone. And it's like, okay, Scotty, the, like you have the floor, it's yours. And it's pretty passive. Scotty wasn't completely dominating these games. He was finding some games that he dominated, but it wasn't like give Scotty possessions and you win, give Scotty possessions and you find good process. It was like, hmm, you get some good returns. You get a decent amount of bad returns. And that doesn't mean he's a, not like a really good player and a really good prospect. It's just like not everyone in the NBA, despite being really good, is going to take a whole bunch of possessions. Chris Middleton was an all NBA player for like five years around that level, that impact. You don't want to give him the whole offense, you know, like, and, and some people might dislike that comp, but it's like, it's true. Not everyone should have the whole offense. People say that about Pascal and he's an all NBA player. People say that about Julius Randle. Same thing about Julius. Yeah. Yeah. In, in two years, people might be saying it about Brunson because you haven't made the Eastern conference finals or the NBA finals or something like that. It's just like to be a guy who gets all the possessions to have a context built around you, you have to be so good. And the saving grace is that the context was never built around Pascal Siakam. Like this isn't a friendly context for Siakam either. And he still went and, you know, all NBA level impact. So Scotty just has to do it. I'm interested to see what happens, but he just has to do it at, at some level. I hope that's uh, a good enough answer. That's a, no, I appreciate the answer because the way I've been kind of, and I've just been, I've been kind of laying low off like Twitter and, and the Discord. So I've just kind of been like in my own thoughts with thinking. And it's like, and the most simplest form I can think of like players is just that you're either like a star or you're somebody who is supposed to help accentuate those stars in its most basic form. And when I, I see RJ's game, it's like he's kind of in, in that in between where he hasn't figured out how to do the role player stuff consistently. 
but he's also not at the level yet where anybody would can seriously consider him like a star or, or a, of that level. Now, does he have the potential to be there? People can argue about that. I don't really want to get into whether I think he's a star or not. It's just I think that it's interesting when players kind of have to grow into being that star rather than coming in straight away and it's like, oh, from day one, we knew he was he was great. He, he's, you know, LeBron or whatever. It's easy to see the star level. But I think for the younger guys where um, they kind of have to figure out how to do the role player stuff, you know, defend consistently, you know, can you hit the spot of threes? Can you, are you going to crash the glass? Or like all, all the all the little things that like, I don't know, like a guy like Josh Hart, his own teammate, like excels at. Um, so I just think it's, I don't know. I, I've just been putting a lot of thought into it. And then I, I, when, you know, you hit me up to do the podcast, I was thinking of the similarities between kind of the context of guys who, who clearly have potential and, and can be really good players in this league, but their team context kind of holds them back. So then it's kind of like the chicken and the egg. Like, is it the team context that's holding him back? Or is it just that he's not capable or capable of doing it yet consistently on a level where the team can, you know, justify giving this guy X amount of usage and X amount of touches in these situations. So just that comparison to me is just interesting. And I wanted to hear your thoughts on that. Yeah, I think and you did a good Scotty, job of answering the question. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm glad. I think that Scotty is better at inputting himself as an additive player um, early on in his career than RJ was in, in years one and two, for sure. RJ has had more time to figure out, like a, a couple of years more time to figure out how to play off of guys. But Scotty, by the time he reaches RJ's, you know, that fourth or fifth year, I, I think Scotty will be like a really, really great additive player. Um, in addition to another star, if he can be. Pascal Siakam was a guy who wasn't a star from the outset. And he was just a guy who, as the team changed, took on more possessions, but the team was never built around him. Uh, I think my hope is that Scotty just takes whatever context comes in stride and reaches his stardom or, you know, organically while doing that. Because a lot of the work, like a lot of success is context, obviously, but a lot of it is just what is your output as a player and what are your skills that allow the team to build around and succeed? Like you have to have a bunch of emerging skills. It can't just be, well, Scotty is one of the best transition playmakers, so let's just be in transition all the time. You can't necessarily control for that. But what you can control for, and this is why you know stars are stars, is that you're going to have a, a whole bunch of half-court possessions who gives you advantages in a half-court possession. And Scotty has yet to prove that. We'll see if he does. If he starts proving that, big time. Big time. I want to talk about the overall depth of the Knicks. It's something you kind of preached in our episode last year, was that the the reason to watch the Knicks, a lot of it is going to be the success of the bench and like some of those transitional lineups. And you go down the line, there's like a ton of really interesting players. So for some people... It ended up being Josh Hart, who is, I think, Raptors fans love Josh Hart. He was, you know, rumored to them in Portland deals. He's fantastic. Um, one of the best transition players in the league. A guy who we talk about additives, kind of accentuating stars. He's brilliant. You have guys like Mitchell Robinson, Jericho Sims, Isaiah Hartenstein. You have guys like um, DiVincenzo. You have guys like Barrett. Um, Nathan Knight, I know, is not everybody's cup of tea, but I'm interested to see what happens with him. He's intriguing, man. Uh, I, yeah. I see the vision. Um, <laughs> you have Quentin Grimes. You have uh, Miles McBride. You have Evan Ford. It's just like a bunch of guys who do a lot of things. If you can just sell me on the the Knicks bench or the depth of it, I suppose. 
Yeah, so for the most part, um, the season kind of changed for the Knicks last year when they went to a nine-man rotation. They kind of gave uh, Derrick Rose, Fournier, and uh, Cam Reddish at the time the boot, <laughs> sat him on the bench, and they basically never played again for the most yep. part. Um, and what that did was I think it got rid of their bad defenders for the most part in their um, rotation, and it gave them a really solid nine. And situationally, McBride would come in, um, Deuce, he would come in and and – give some like really good defensive minutes the shooting for him hasn't come around yet um but i'm still hopeful because he's shot at well everywhere he's been in except for the nba for whatever reason um so i still kind of think that just you know the the inconsistent minutes just you know the shooting hasn't come around yet but coming into this season the intriguing thing with the bench is that you know they made the trade to um uh obi top and to send obi top into the pacers for two second round picks which a lot of people were upset about, you know, the, the value of that deal, trading a lottery pick for two second rounders. But that's a different conversation. But the intriguing part is that they brought in Dante. So in theory, they're going to be playing kind of smaller. Um, and the bench unit is going to be with Josh Hart at the four, which a lot of people, including myself, have kind of been preaching that I think the Knicks need to kind of give themselves a little more variance and, and being able to like switch lineups. Um, the way Tom Thibodeau's coaching style is, it's very like hockey style substitutions. So, um, you know, the starters play with the starters. And then when the starters come out, the bench unit comes in together and then they just stick with one starter, which was usually RJ. Um, so I, I think kind of bringing in Dante and getting rid of Obi, it kind of gets rid of that like positional overlap where now he kind of has more, where Thibodeau has more space to um, mix and match guys. I think we're going to see a lot of like small lineups, not in terms of their center, because they're always going to run a traditional center. I have no doubt about that. Just in terms of like, you know, a lineup with like quickly Grimes, Dante, Hart, and then Hartenstein. So that's four guys who are probably all sub like 6'6", six, 6'5", six, six, and then a traditional center in Hartenstein. Um, so I think that kind of unit is going to be fun to watch. And I think what the Knicks front office and their coaching staff have kind of like battled with each other is... Um, kind of building a roster that gives Thibodeau what he wants and accentuates um, like his defensive, you know, mindset and, and the way he likes to play on offense, which is very kind of, you know, give the ball to your best player and, and have him create. And then defensively, I think that it'll give them, they built this roster of smaller guys who can kind of guard up a position which I think is kind of zigging when the league is kind of zagging and they're putting bigger players on smaller guys and the Knicks are kind of going the opposite direction. So sorry for the ramble, but I'm just very intrigued to see how this all comes together because it's like the first step that I think the Knicks have made in about like two seasons or so where there, there might be a significant change to their like style of play. Not Maybe not significant, but there will be like a noticeable um, change to their style of play. How do you, how do you think that fits with, um, with Randall and Brunson? Um, I think I think it accentuates them as well. Um, I, I think looking back, if you look at the numbers, especially with Emmanuel quickly, whenever Emmanuel quickly plays with either of those guys, those their numbers just like skyrocket. Um, I think he's the perfect example of like an amplifier and how I mentioned earlier, like there are guys who are stars and guys who accentuate stars. I think he's the perfect example of a guy who accentuates stars and kind of when he's on the floor, he just kind of, he's kind of like a chameleon. He kind of just, Whatever the team needs, he just fi- figures it out. If they need a background rotation, he's there at the rim at 6'3 or whatever size he is, and, and he's just protecting the rim with his wingspan. It's just kind of interesting how small he is. Um, and then I, I also think that Randall, Randall played really well when um, 
they gave him a bunch of space to work with. I, I think that's the biggest thing. I think his biggest mm-hmm. issue as a player is his processing speed. I think sometimes when teams send him doubles, it takes him that extra like little dribble or that extra hitch to to read what who the open man is. And I think that spreading the court out more for him, giving him guys who kind of are used to playing off ball more, like Dante and Josh Hart, guys who know where to be and when to be there. I think that'll simplify the game for him as well. And hopefully like pay some dividends in the playoffs. We I think his playoff struggles are very well documented. But I think those two are really gonna benefit from having guys that just know what to do, where to be and, and when to be there. Yeah. That's a great point about the processing speed is that if you size down and lean a little bit more into spacing on the offensive end, a big deal for Randall is that you get longer doubles. And the farther away the double has to come from, the more time you have to see it, the more time you have to read the floor. And especially if those guys are really good at shaping up off of the double, be it you know to the three-point line as a, sh- as a shooter or kind of cutting into the lane, it's going to make the reads easier for Randall. And then obviously the inherent like, oh, more isolation for this guy who very clearly succeeds by dominating guys physically, you know, be it on the block or the 45 extended. Um, the process is quite similar to Pascal Siakam as far as like where the touch comes from. Mm-hmm. They're different in how they achieve it going forward. And Pascal, as far as processing speed is obviously, you know, a little bit quicker. Um, Randall, as far as a jump shooter, has reached heights that people think there's no way he'll get there. And then it craters. And then it's like, oh, wow, how did he get here as a jump shooter? There's a lot of variance there. But once again, all NBA, like eats glass, sprints out in transition. Like you talked about having him make a lot more plays in transition at the start of, you know, when we did last year's episode. It's just nice to watch a guy who has been maligned. Like he's, there's a lot of, not controversy, but there's just, a lot of differing opinions about Randall that range anywhere from, you know, he he is correctly identified as an all NBA player versus, you know, send him to China. Like there's, there's (laughs) competing conceptions of his game, but I'm in the same place as I was last year that like, he's just very good. It's, it's tough to just completely sell yourself on like the Randall led team. I think Mm -hmm. you and many people know what the ceiling of that looks like, but having Brunson there, uh, I think really helps translate some of those, especially like late possession stuff. He's he's such a wizard in finding out how to score. Yeah. Um, I do kind of want to hear what you think about Brunson after seeing a year of him in New York. And um, are you Brunson pilled, et cetera? I, I might be a little Brunson pilled, um, especially after that playoff run he had. I, I think he proved that he can kind of thrive in the half court setting kind of independent of his context. I think, he was in a very rough context in the playoffs. The Knicks forgot how to shoot in the playoffs. Nobody could hit a three. Um, all their shooters, Grimes, quickly, it, it was it didn't matter. Nobody could shoot. <laughs> and, you know, the, the teams, especially Miami, they really packed the paint on him, sending multiple defenders, bigger defenders on him. And he still find a way, found a way to, you know, put up 30 on crazy efficiency. Um, so I, I think it spells really well that I think the Knicks have a legit offensive star on their hands. Um, I think his game is really built for the playoffs just because it's more mm-hmm. half-court oriented. And yep. he's legitimately one of the best half-court scorers in the NBA, um, which is which is something that when coming into the – when he signed with the Knicks, there were, like, signs of it. You know, he, he did show some things um, in that last playoff run with Dallas. But to see it kind of, you know, full throttle, doing it every single night, you know, 
being the, the literal focal plan of a team's defense and still figuring out a way to score. Um, it's just insanely impressive. Um, I, I think that now I think the Knicks are have to kind of figure out who are the right guys to get around him because I, I think in a sense that he is a cornerstone, so they're going to try and figure out who are the guys that work with him, who are the guys that don't work with him, and then what are the archetypes of players that they should be looking for. I think that the very clear... Um, missing piece on this roster, I guess, is just kind of this big wing who can kind of defend and, and shoot and maybe bring a little bit um, off the bounce. And makes you, I think makes that, you wonder if that, that three first-round pick and Fournier trade that was offered to the Raptors last year, you know, might have been truth to that, you know? Yeah, to the Ananobi. Yeah, yeah. That, that's why the rumors are there. And and it's a different conversation and it's, it's a longer conversation, but I, I think they clearly are trying to kind of upgrade on the RJ spot eventually um, if RJ doesn't show improvement in this coming up season, in this coming season or the next other season. Um, the names they've been rumored are like OG, uh, Paul George. Um, I mean, Joel Embiid is the other one, but he's Joel Embiid, so everybody's interested in him. <laughs> but um, yeah, I just think that um, there are the next step is kind of building around Brunson. And then I also think there's just this whole other, other conversation about the fit between like RJ and Randall, whose skills are kind of you know, are on top of each other. They, they kind of yeah. conflict. Um, but yeah, I, I'm I'm all in on Brunson though. I think he's a legitimately like top twenty, top twenty five player, depending on whoever you want to argue with on that day. <laughs> yeah, it's what it, I think. It's really impressive. I love when there's you know some ga- some players' games are objectively better in the playoffs. Like they're they fit the playoff style. And Brunson is like kind of a grinder. He definitely makes sense. And Randall, I think, makes sense. Now, he, of course, can have in the future positive playoff performances, and I'm sure we'll see some, but it really helps carry a team through 82 games. The regular season is a slog. You need to get through it. You need a guy who's going to eat possessions, get you like half of the way there. And Randall, despite his shortcomings, he's a guy who goes out during the regular season and just balls. You know, like he, he takes possessions, he gives you output, he brings it every night. And that's so, so important so that you can get to the playoffs where Brunson can do, you know, Brunson is great during the regular season, obviously, but you got to get to the playoffs for some wizardry on that end too. So I just, I think it makes a lot of sense. And, you know, maybe as they build and change the Knicks, I don't know what Randall's future, like over the next four years, which or the the rest of Brunson's contract, I should say, what that looks like. But whether they're looking to piecemeal change, you know, their formula a little bit, or if they end up making a big change via, like we said, development, free agency, a trade, something like that. Who knows? But I like the I like the position they're in. Um, kind of what we talked about at the start. It's it's a really interesting makeup. Yeah, it's very. Uh, I love the point that you made about like. Randall kind of being this like workhorse workhorse during the regular season. I think people kind of undervalue that. Um, I, I, it's a different argument of like, yeah, like who do you trade? Like even if you do trade Randall and the guy you trade for gives you like a higher ceiling, quote unquote, like it may rate lower your floor during the regular season. And I think that another underappreciated thing about Randall is that he's consistently is playing like 70 plus games, 75 plus games. He's, he's out there every night. And I think with Randall, and I'm sure you probably see kind of the same thing with Siakam with, with like the discourse around them is, is sometimes people focus too much on what they aren't and then instead of what they are as players. And I think that leads to like 
guys that kind of made themselves into these star level players kind of being underappreciated because they're quote unquote not good enough to lead a team when in reality that there's probably like 10 players in the NBA and any and any given season that are legitimately, you know, raise your title title odds that significantly. So yep. uh, it's a little frustrating seeing that just in general because I think we especially Nick fans kind of underappreciate what Randall's done since he's been in New York. Um but I do get the frustration to an extent but I I just think needs to be more balanced in terms of like understanding that like he's still really good (laughs) yeah that's well that's that's a big problem with you know nba discourse in general is just focusing on what players aren't and you know it's because everybody is really people love to think about team building transactions or prospective transactions are a huge part of part of nba discourse it's a huge part of nba media like a lot of the big talkers on nba media spend more time talking about prospective transactions and team building and big time failures than they do talk about, you know, the wins from each game to each game, which for guys like Siakam and Randall, I think Siakam's better for what it's worth. But for guys like that, <laughs> I think that there is like, of course, you have to address that these guys come in, they bring their lunch pail every single game. And they will, you know, they're a workhorse throughout the regular season. They're going to put you in a position to win a bunch of games so that even if they aren't the star in game six of the Eastern Conference Finals or something, they help bring you there. Like the seating is important. The fact that you are there. The Kings are a great example of this. Some of their players, once they got to the, the playoffs, it was harder for them to kind of thrive in the dribble handoff actions working off of Sabonis since they're being denied like guys are jumping the handoff and forcing them downhill. And it's not as comfortable in the 80, like during the 82 game season, it's like guys are going to go under that action and you're going to get a three every once in a while, or you're going to be able to reroute and do stuff and you can make those reads. But when a guy is playing deny defense and kind of up in your face, you struggle. Well, it's a good thing. Monk was great. It's a good thing. Fox is great, but the team, especially in a deeper NBA you just like you have to be able to get to that point and 82 game players help you get there. And I'm not saying Siakam or Randall are only 82 game players, but like they at the very least are going to help you win games and a ton of them in the regular season. And then, you know, depending on the team context, they in conjunction with other guys are going to help you reach higher heights at the, you know, the playoff level. It's just like team building is really hard because you can't just rely on ceiling only. Ceiling is a big deal, of course, but there's a reason we see a team like Miami go from the finals to out in the first round the next year back to the fun, like it's or the Eastern Conference finals, right? It's just like it's really tough. There's a lot of variance now in the NBA, and you need guys to help you kind of just carry you through that variance. And the Knicks, for what it's worth, with their team building, I think have really protected themselves against variance, which they obviously learned from you know going from one year of big time success to not having so much of it um any any final thoughts on the Knicks before we do a little bit of Raptors talk um probably just I think I think a lot of Knicks fans in general are a little down on some of the Knicks younger guys after the the playoff runs like Quentin Grimes kind of struggled to shoot a little bit uh Manuel quickly had like a completely like opposite playoffs compared to his regular season when he was incredible um and I think people I don't know. I don't know how you judge the difference in, you know, playoffs and regular season, but I think sometimes we, and this is going to sound insane, but I think sometimes we put too much stock into like one playoff series and and one situation where 
yeah, where one team completely um, is game planning for your weaknesses. Um, so I, I just think, and it's also like young players struggle. Um, you don't really know what to do till you do it. And, and sometimes you have to fail to, to be able to do that. So um, just in general, if any Knicks fans are listening to this, just just give, give the young guys some time. Let them let them take their warts and, and they'll most likely be better for it in the future. <laughs> there's a there's a reason why we see like stars struggle in the playoffs. Like NBA defenses are so clever, so smart and so elite at game planning and being malleable to try and stop the opposing players that and it really could change radically depending on what team you face. Like the NBA is a matchup league now. It's exactly. from the upsets we're seeing in the playoffs, that much is clear. Like it really depends on who you play. So it's important to have matchup proof players to some degree, of course, and guys who provide a floor of defense and playmaking and open court success for because you're going to run into that stuff no matter what. And then their half court success can change depending on the matchup, of course. But like, maybe you don't play that team next year. Exactly. And it pops off. I think in general, people index too much on the playoffs. You, I agree. 100%. The regular the regular season is undervalued by fans, I think, for and by the the talking point, the discourse, because like that's what eighty percent of what you watch. If and exactly. it could be one hundred percent of what you watch, depending on how good your team is, you know, or ninety eight percent. And so, like, <laughs> I just people need to be able to enjoy regular season basketball and the players who help, you know, your team succeed in that context. So, yeah, that's kind of, I guess, where I'm at. Um, as far as you know, the Raptors, the Knicks have, I think, a front court that underwhelms a lot of people when they look at it, but they. Uh, an effective front court, I think, undoubtedly. Like, they figure out how to win minutes in the front court. Hartenstein, I wanted him on the Raptors really bad. Obviously, it didn't come to fruition. Switching it to the Raptors, though, what do you think of their backcourt? Like, Dennis Schroeder, Malachi Flynn, Gary Trent Jr., maybe OG is at the two, maybe Scotty Barnes is at the one. What do you make about, and we'll leave Pascal Siakam out of this because we've talked about him a fair amount. What do you make of their their ball handling situation? It's a little concerning, to be honest. I don't think they have any. I mean, if we're not including Siakam, and we're just talking about the backcourt, there's no consistent half-court creator. I think a guy like Schroeder can do it as in spurts. Um, Barnes has shown to be able to do it in spurts. Um, but and then Gary Trent Jr. That's not really his thing. He's more of a spot-up guy off the ball. Um, and Malachi Flynn is someone I've always been kind of intrigued with, just just watching from afar. Um, but he's never really quite consistently taking a hold of the backup point guard minutes for whatever reason. And maybe you can give me a quick little rundown on why he hasn't. Because he, every time I've seen him, he's like making like seven shots in a row. And I'm like, what, why doesn't he play? But I'm sure it's defensively or something. Well, I'll, I'll, ans- I'll answer that one quickly. Basically, he, for a long time, when he got drafted, he was the best pick and roll player in, in the country when he was in college, right? And he ended up winning defensive player of the year in his conference. Like he seemed like a classic, you know, Raptors guard. You know, like small guy, going to give you hell on defense, going to shoot it and provide some playmaking. Basically, the Raptors didn't have a pick and roll big to pair him with for the first three years. It's been tough for him to create. And the context of the team has been kind of that for the first two years, they asked him, you know, come off the bench and create your own shot. That's not that's not an easy role and not one that he's equipped to do. 
And then over the past year, they kind of asked him, like, make your spot up looks, which he did, and try and compete really well on defense, which he had a lot of trouble doing. The defense hasn't carried over, and he hasn't been able to provide consistent offense off his own dribble as a playmaker. The shooting, I think, has gotten to a place where it's like, okay, he can he can shoot at the level that an NBA guard needs to be able to shoot at. But the rest of the stuff hasn't pro- hasn't progressed at the level that it needed to. And he's a guy I think is um, a big time second draft candidate. Like there will be a team that takes a swing on him. And if he gets paired with like a really nifty pick and roll big off the bench or in some transitional lineups, I think he might have se- second legs to his career. But the Raptors just they haven't had much interest in prioritizing him. And he kind of runs into the same thing as, you know, what we talked about earlier is like, can you dictate that you get possessions? And if a team is going to use possessions for your development, do you do enough to, you know, kind of justify it? And he hasn't really, and the Raptors haven't bent their back to work on his development or anything. So it's just been an odd couple, those two together. So that's kind of where it's at. Yeah. So um, just to continue, um, in terms of their backcourt, I'm, I'm pretty low on it. Um, I like Schroeder. I like Malachi Flynn. I, I just told you I've, I've been kind of intrigued with him for a while. But just in terms of in terms of like being able to consistently create in, in the half court in the NBA, the level is really high. The bar is yep. really high. And I don't think either of those guys kind of clear that bar, at least not on a consistent level. And I'm kind of concerned that there's not enough shooting around those guys either to make their lives a little bit easier. So... Just overall, I think the reason why I'm kind of low on the Raptors, just in general, coming on to ne- coming into next season, is just I don't I don't see how those guys kind of help make the game easier for like a Siakam or a Scotty or, or even an OG. Um, but I do think that maybe the answer is a little bit more point Scotty, which I think would be interesting. And then you, you kind of instead of starting Schroeder, you start like Gary Trent, and then now you have Trent and Ananobi on the wings, and maybe that helps free up you know, a little bit of those concerns with the spacing with Siakam and Perto and Barnes on the, on the lineup. But overall, I'm a little bit lower just because I think that their backcourt is really kind of weak, especially with how the talent level is in the NBA right now. Um, I think if Schroeder is their starting point guard, he might arguably be the, the worst starting point guard in the NBA right now, give or take, probably bottom three. Um, so I'm, I'm not really that... I thought they... When they lost Fred, I was concerned about what they were going to do. And I think Schroeder is a very good, like, solid, like, stopgap. But I do think, like, eventually, especially probably sooner than later, they're probably going to have to upgrade that position. Yeah. Well, it's true, though, right, is that Schroeder, I think, you know, my initial reaction, which was on video because Trey and I were live streaming, reacting to Fred leaving, we're talking about it, and then they signed Schroeder, I don't know, like 35, 40 minutes later. And I was like, you know, does that make that much sense? Stewed on it for a few days and came back and was like, I think they made the best signing they could have given the situation. But, and signing Schroeder, I think is like, that's a check mark. It's really good for everybody's, you know, the morale that he ends up winning the FIBA World Cup MVP. He looked good. Germany's front court and wings really made it. He like, that was a really great context for Schroeder. And Germany is a team super impressive, obviously. You know, they won. And so I, I don't think he'll, I don't think winning FIBA World Cup MVP means anything that much different for his upcoming season. Like it's great. That's an international accolade. And Schroeder was, of course, a good guard to sign. But does he radically change 
spacing problems? Does he radically change like a whole bunch of pick and roll possessions? Does he make their offense leaps and bounds better? Is he going to be leaps and bounds better at the point of attack defensively than Fred? I'm I'm sure some people think yes. The overall impact defensively, I'm not sure it'll be, you know, that much better. I guess we'll see. Having a mid-level exception guard and thinking that guy changes your fortunes, that's probably the thing that, like, that's just, that won't be the case. That's the tough aspect of it, which is not a comment on Schroeder. Schroeder is a good guard, like, and getting him on the mid-level exception, I think, is a win. But does that fix the overall roster construction of the Raptors or change things? Probably not. And if it does, wow, like, huge W. That would be incredible. Yeah, it's a massive signing and you take the win. Yeah, um, I hope that's the case, but erring on the side of mm, we'll see. As, as you mentioned, like the Raptors backcourt, but you just look at it; it has to be one of the worst in the NBA. And their frontcourt having a ton of talent, the wings a ton of talent. The tough thing is about how do you get those guys to accentuate each other. Darko has quite a job ahead of him, and you and I, the job is done for now. We've we've talked it out. Uh, any parting shots you want to give before we get out of here? Oh, not 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 much. Just want to thank you again for having me on. It was a blast last year. It was a blast this year. Um, I love coming on here, and, and the conversations we have are always fun for me, at least. So I hope it's the same for you. Um, but again, thank you for having me again. Man, of course, my favorite Knicks writer, my favorite Knicks talker. For anybody who enjoyed this, we will, of course, I'm sure, we'll do some sort of game preview or game recap or something upcoming this season. Um, And if anybody, if there are any Knicks fans who somehow are introduced to Ariel through this, or you're thinking that the Knicks are going to be really interesting this season, you want to pay attention, A, Pacheco NBA, that's his at on Twitter, and he'll link all of his work and stuff through there. Make sure you go follow. Um, As far as figuring out the Knicks, I don't think there's a better way to do so. So Ariel, thank you very much for coming on. Listeners, I hope you enjoyed it. And uh, yeah, we'll get out of here. See ya.